right, here we go. So uh, in the past couple of weeks, we have been uh, just going through a series called How Not to Read the Bible. Uh, And over the past couple of years, if you've been with us, we've been in and out of a series on the Gospel of John. Uh, And today, there's going to be a bit of a mashup of those two series, because we're finishing How Not to Read the Bible today, and we're also going to be jumping back into a section on the Gospel of John starting next week. And the two ideas kind of come together in the words of Jesus in John 14, 6. Jesus says this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, this verse, along with many others throughout Scripture, uh, tells us that, okay, there's this person of Jesus, God become flesh, and that he is the only way to God or to salvation or to heaven or whatever language we would put around it. It's this idea of the exclusivity of Christ. And that is an idea that is uh, foreign to our um, modern world and our Western culture. It's, it's, a, it's an idea that our Western culture finds very offensive to say, no, there's only one way to God. And so throughout this series, How Not to Read the Bible, we've been looking at some of these ideas or passages that are challenging and trying to get a better idea of that. And today we wrap that up by looking at this idea, what do we do with the claim of Jesus, the claim of Christianity, that he is the only way to God? Now... Our aversion to this idea is born out of what's called um, uh, expressive individualism, right? In kind of our Western culture, and this is a a cultural moment. It's easy to be in a cultural moment and think it's always been this way and things have always been like this, but this is just our cultural moment in this place and in this time. We think that the highest good is to express what's inside of yourself. This is expressive individualism. Follow your dreams, you know, you do you, uh, whatever. Look look into your heart, okay, And, and, and live that out out into the world. And so out of that gets born this idea, you have your truth and I have my truth and everybody has their truth. Who's ever heard this before? Yes? Those of you that aren't raising your hands, just like, I'm too tired to raise my hand this morning, okay? Because it's an idea that it's true. It permeates our culture. You have your truth, I have mine. Um, And we could could go down like the philosophical rabbit hole of why like in practicality that doesn't work. If everybody lived by, like we believe that, but if we actually live by that, it would just be anarchy everywhere. Like the world doesn't work. There are things that are objectively true. But then we get into things that are matters of opinion, where it's like, well, you can think that's true, and I can think this is true, and we can have a difference of of opinion here. But this creeps into the way that we think about faith. This creeps into the way that we think about uh, religious practice. And uh, there there is an idea of saying, hey, like, all paths kind of lead to God, and they're all the same, Um, which is really interesting because they make... uh, claims about what they believe that actually cancel other ones out. And so there is a reality that they can all be wrong, but they can't all be right. And so what do we do, though, when we come across exclusive claims of Jesus? How do we understand that when we look around the world and there are thousands of different religions practiced? There are lots of different gods that are worshipped. So here's what I want to do in our time together. Um, I want to look at what the scripture says. Like, why in terms of the the biblical narrative do we think and do we believe that Jesus is the only way to God? I'm not trying to convince you that that way is right. I'm just trying to say, here is the story that Scripture tells. Whether or not that view is right is a whole different sermon series, a different conversation. Uh, As a church, we believe that way is right. We we follow Jesus. We worship Jesus. We think he's awesome. But today, I just want to look at, okay, from, from beginning to end, why does the Scripture paint this message that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? 
And so let's start with this graphic that we've looked at several times in this series. As we've been going through the series, we said, hey, everything in the Bible fits within some sort of larger context, a larger story. Uh, it breaks down into kind of these six acts. Act one, God creates, uh, and he creates this world. He creates humanity, and he dwells. He lives with people, and it's good, but it's short-lived. Act two comes along, and, and the humans rebel. They say, we don't want what God has done. We don't want to listen to him and, and follow his way. We want to be in charge. And we have act two, this rebellion and the fallout that comes from that. Act three, God calls a group of people, this nation of Israel, to say, I'm going to do something for the whole world through you. I'm going to begin working about this process. That process comes to completion in act four, where this redemption is provided. Jesus shows up as the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures of Israel's story and says, I'm the one who's here to redeem the whole world. Act five then, that message of Jesus goes out. This, the good news that King Jesus has come, his kingdom is here and we're invited to be, uh, to be a part of it. That's the, that's the act that we're living in right now. As we go about our daily lives, we're living in this in-between where it's like, yeah, things are still broken and things are still messed up, but Christ has come and we proclaim that message. And of course, then we wait for act six when Jesus returns. When God comes to dwell with his people again, there is no more sin, there is no more death, there is no more pain, and everything is as it was meant to be. So when we look at this timeline then, we go all the way back to the beginning. We look at Act 1. And in the beginning, in Act 1, we see that humans worshipped one God. We looked at this, this passage a couple of weeks ago in Genesis chapter 1 as we talked about the relationship between uh, faith or the Bible and science. And the opening words are, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, one God, one most high, one creator God uh, is above all and over all. And this God creates humanity and he wants to, to live and dwell with them and be in relationship with them and in harmony with them. And the context of which this is said makes it kind of significant in terms of this conversation around different uh, religious practices is this is given to the nation of Israel as they're wandering around in the wilderness. This is when the, the first five books of, of the Bible are, are written. They're attributed to Moses during the time that Israel has left 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Before they go into the promised land, these texts are being produced and being taught and being read. And so all Israel has known, this generation that's coming into the promised land has been 400 years of slavery, but also 400 years in a culture that worships many different gods. The Egyptian culture had a lot of different gods. They were gonna, the Israelites were going to be encountering other peoples on their journey that worship different gods. They were going to be going into the promised land, and they were going to be surrounded by people that worship different gods. And so the story, the narrative that's given to the nation of Israel for them to say, this is who you are, and this is who God is, is in the beginning, God. In the beginning, there was Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, the most high God, the creator God. They, they, were, they were a monotheistic people is the technical term. Now, there is debate among uh, scholars of like ancient religions. There are people who, who study, okay, what is the history of religion? Like, when did people start to worship and what did that look like? And scholars are actually divided. There are some who fall into the category of saying humans were first polytheistic, meaning worshiping multiple gods. But there are some scholars who say, no, actually, it seems as though there was a primitive monotheism before there was a polytheism, a primitive monotheism. Uh, before multiple gods existed, there was an idea of one god. Um, some scholars do believe this. There's one particular name's Karen Armstrong. She wrote kind of this classic book, The History of God. And she had said there had been a primitive monotheism before men and women had started to worship a number of gods. In the beginning, therefore, there was one god. And so we have a biblical narrative that says, in the beginning, this one God creates. And we have some historical evidence to say that's kind of where people began to worship. But something happened. That was short-lived. 
Because again, all these thousands of religions, they, they came from somewhere. We move into act two, the humans rebel. The fall happens. Humans reject the worship of the one true God. And you have the fall and you have the fallout from it. The people begin in the fall and in their fallen state to create and to worship different gods. Now, one of the things that, that we do as kind of Western people, we like our rational brains. We're like, we, things have to make sense. It's all about, you know, what, what I can see and touch and feel. It's the material world. And so we're a little skeptical, we'll say, of the immaterial world, of the spiritual realm of things. And so we have a way of thinking of like, none of, none of that exists. There aren't any other spiritual beings. Unless we're like Christians, and a lot of times we're like, well, there's only one. There's just one. There's only one, and he's God most high. But that is not the picture that the biblical authors point to. The biblical narrative, when you read from cover to cover, the, the, the authors believe that there are multiple, they would call them spiritual beings. They wouldn't say that they are God, like God most high, Yahweh, but they are what we would probably refer to as little g or lowercase g gods. They're referred to by different names throughout the scripture in the Old Testament especially. They're called spiritual beings. They're known as the divine council. They're, they're known as the heavenly host. Sometimes we might say things like, well, angels are demons, but uh, an angel isn't actually a specific spiritual being. It just means messenger. So one of these spiritual beings that is a messenger of God. And in the fall, people began to worship some of these other spiritual beings. And some of them, like some people, like, hey, we have people who are, God's like, I'm going to create humanity, and I want human beings to worship me, and some do, and some don't. And God has created spiritual beings and saying, I want you to be loyal to me. And some are, and some aren't. Some are in rebellion against the one true God. We, we get the first glimpse of this within the first couple of pages of the Bible when we meet this first spiritual rebel. Chapter 3 of Genesis, this serpent shows up. It's like, where did he come from? And he's tempting humanity. He's deceiving humanity to, to turn their back on God and or, uh, define good and evil on their own terms. We see this dual picture of a dual rebellion, of spiritual rebellion and human rebellion on the earth. And during this time of the fallout, this really comes to a head in this event that's known as the, the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel, God responds to human pride and human rebellion, and he scatters the peoples across the face of the earth, and he gives them different languages. But there's also something going on behind the scenes. It's more than just the pragmatic material. People are scattered and people speak different languages now. The author of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 32, gives us an insight into this. Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, when the Most High, so the Most High being, again, the God of the Israelites, Yahweh, the Most High, the one true creator God, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind. Now, Deuteronomy is written, again, during that time when Israel is in the wilderness. Deuteronomy is written as kind of a recap of everything that had happened up until that point. Deuteronomy, the, the nation of Israel is right on the border of like the promised land, and this is God recapping. Here's everything that's happened on this journey. Here's who you are. Here's who I am. Here's this covenant that you've made. Remember these things as you go into the promised land. And so to the nation of Israel, who has this relationship with God, who've been through this story, when he says when, uh, when mankind was divided, they're thinking, oh, we know when that happened. That happened at the Tower of Babel. That happened, if you go and you look in Genesis, it's Genesis chapters 10 and 11. Genesis 10 is the table of nations. It lists out all the different people groups. And Genesis 11 is, here's how it happened. It happened at Babel. But the author tells us something else, that when mankind was divided, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. This is a 
a Hebrew phrase that refers to those spiritual beings. That there's something happening in human rebellion at the Tower of Babel that that their languages are confused, they're spread apart across the earth, and they begin to worship other gods. They begin to worship some of these uh, little g created spiritual beings rather than the one true uncreated creator. But then the author tells us that's not all that happened. The nations are given over to the other gods, but the Lord's portion, Yahweh's portion, is his people. Jacob is his allotted inheritance. Jacob is simply another name for Israel. And so all the other nations are going to be worshiping these other gods, but Israel, you're mine, God would say. I want you to worship me because I'm going to do something through you for the whole world. We have a picture from the moment of the fallout. Humanity created to be in relationship with God. The fall happens, the fallout begins, and from the moment of the fallout, God begins working something and doing something to to resolve that, to fix that, to restore his relationship with humanity with humanity. That when we, when we see that first spiritual rebel in Genesis chapter 3, it begins to lie to humanity and say, hey, God, did he really say that? He doesn't want what's best for you. And the consequences of that begin to, God begins to talk about that, and he addresses this spiritual rebel and says this, God, speaking to the serpent in Genesis 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So the minute this this human project goes off the rails, God's like, someone is coming along to fix it, that there is going to be an offspring of of the woman. So there's going to be a human one, a human being, someone born of woman who will come along and crush the serpent, crush this this figure of evil, this this source of spiritual evil and rebellion and, and sin and death. Someone is coming to kill that at the source, but it's not going to come without a cost. The serpent will will strike the heel of the one who crushes his head. And from this moment on, at the very beginning of the biblical narrative, we're set up with this expectation, we're waiting for the snake crusher. Where's the snake crusher? Where's the one who's going to fix this? Where's the one who's going to take care of the sin and the death and the evil and the pain that we feel that originated at the very beginning? And then when people begin to worship those other gods, when they begin chasing after those other gods at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 10 and 11, and God scatters them, and God gives them over. You, you close Genesis 11, and, and Babel is done, and then you open the page, you flip the page to Genesis 12, and you're introduced to a man named Abraham. And God makes a promise to Abraham to bless the whole world through him. He says this, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. All the peoples who were just scattered, all the peoples who have been given over to worship of these other gods, all the peoples, I'm I'm not done with them. I want to bring them back in. I want to be in relationship with them. I want to know them. And Abraham, I'm going to create a nation and a family and a people out of you and through your lineage is how I'm going to do this thing. And throughout the history of that family, the history of the nation of Israel that we have recorded in the Old Testament, God would continue to reveal more and more about who the snake crusher would be, who would be the one who would bless the nations, who would be the one who would restore God's uh, relationship with people uh, back into what it was meant to be. And through the prophets, this picture of this one to come would become uh, narrowed and, and crystallized. You read the prophets and the, the picture that they paint of who this Messiah would be, and you read things in, uh, things like Isaiah 7 where it says, well, this one to come is going to be born of a virgin. You read things in like Micah 5.2. It says, this one to come is going to be born in Bethlehem. 
You read things in Isaiah 53. It says this one to come, he's actually going to suffer and be killed even though he's innocent and his death will actually bring healing to his people and forgiveness of their sins. And so as you journey through the story of the Old Testament from Genesis all the way up through the end of it, it narrows the focus and narrows the focus and narrows the focus. And you have this one of like, we're expecting this snake crushing, nation blessing, sin forgiving, suffering for his people. And then Jesus shows up on the scene. And Jesus shows up as the fulfillment and the continuation of that story. After the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, Christianity proper begins, but it wasn't the beginning of what God had been doing. It's like, you know, Christianity is attributed to saying, hey, this started around, around 30 AD. After the resurrection of Jesus, this movement begins. These people begin following him. But the Christian faith is not a, a faith that began in 30 AD. Rather, it was a continuation of what God had been doing from the very beginning. It was finding its fulfillment. It was finding its resolution in Christ and people saying, he's here. It's time to follow him. So the biblical story brings us up to this point. It builds this tension of us looking. We're waiting. We're waiting for this one who's been promised. We need this one who's been promised. And Jesus shows up. And with all of that, the words of Jesus in John 14 gain a lot more weight. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus spoke those words uh, during his last night with his disciples. A couple of hours after he says those words, he's going to be arrested, he's going to be crucified, it's going to be excruciating pain as he dies for the sin of the world. And so as he's sharing with his disciples, here's like kind of some of these last things that I want you to know that you need to know before I go. It's, it's in the section of John that's known as the farewell discourse. That's what we're going to spend the next couple of weeks in. Um, and it's just him kind of saying like, these are the most important things, here's what I don't want you to, to forget. And he, he begins talking to them about, I'm leaving. And they're all like, What? Like, I thought, like, what do you mean you're leaving? You haven't done all the things that we expected you to do. He's like, no, 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 I'm leaving, but don't worry. And he comforts them, and he begins to speak these words to them. John 14, start in verse 3. He says, if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you may also be. He says, guys, I'm leaving, and it's good that I am, because I'm going to prepare a place for you. The place that Jesus was preparing for his disciples, the place that he's preparing for us, the place that he's preparing for anyone who would put faith in him is the place that you and I and every human who's ever been on the face of the planet, it's the place you were made to be. It's the place you were meant for. It's the place you were built for. It's a place that isn't even a place at all. It's not a physical location. It's not like, oh, you know, if you go down the road and you hang a left and you show up at this place... Because he, he says, it's not about where I'm going, it's about who you're going to be with. I'm preparing a place so that, so that where I am, you may also be. In the beginning, humans were created to be in relationship with God, to walk with him, to know him. He's like, that's the place you were meant to be. That's the place that you have been separated from. That's the place I'm going to make for you place where we can be together. And so when he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, you know, when I was a, when I was a kid, I would hear something like this and I would picture it because it's all like, oh, Jesus, it's a, it, my father's house is a mansion. He's got many rooms. I'm like, he's making a room for me. He's getting the guest room ready, right? And it's just like, Jesus is just making the bed made up. He's making a place for me. He's the only person that could ever just be perfect at fitted sheets. It's Jesus. And he's like, that, like, that was the picture that I had. Like, he's, he's preparing a place, but the preparation that he's making is not preparation about making a bed up or making a room up or making a physical location up. The preparation looks like a cross in an empty grave. 
That is the preparation. I'm going to prepare a place where we can be together. Jesus, what do you have to do so that we can be together? I have to be murdered on a cross, and I have to raise from the dead, and then we can be together. That's his preparation for us, to remove the thing that got in the way of us being with God in the first place was our rebellion, was our rejection of God. He says, I have to take care of that so that we can be together again. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And oh, by the way, you know the way to where I'm going. I love the disciples because they say what the rest of us are thinking. They're just like, Thomas is like, what do you mean we know the way? We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Like, Jesus, you haven't told us where you're going. If you would tell us where we're going, you know, maybe then we could get a map. We could ask around. We can get some directions. Like, if you just give us the end destination, we can figure it out. But you haven't even told us that, so how can we know the way? And it's in light of that conversation, in light of this dialogue back and forth, that Jesus responds with these famous words. Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Here's how you know the way, Thomas, because you're looking at the way. The the way isn't an it, it's a who. Like, you're trying to get the place I'm preparing, the place that I'm going is for you to be back in relationship with God. And so the way to where you're going is standing right in front of you talking to you, and the destination to where you're trying to go is standing right in front of you talking to you. You are trying to get to God, and I'm telling you, you're staring him in the face, and the way to him is through me. The thing that we're looking for, there's that it. How do I get to God? How do I have the the life that he has intended for me? How do I get to heaven? How do every kind of worldview is trying to answer this kind of question? Whether that's like a religious perspective or kind of secular humanism and enlightenment, how do I get to kind of that, that peak of God or salvation or heaven or whatever that looks like? And Jesus is like, it's not an it, it's a who. The way is a who, and I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, not a way. The way. I'm not teaching you how to get somewhere. I'm not teaching you the way. I am the way. I am the truth, not a version of truth. And that's not to say that you can't find truth in other worldviews and other perspectives. There's truth to be found all around us. There are bits and pieces of truth that we, can, that we can learn from different traditions and different perspectives, and we can look at the world around us and see how things operate, and there are different truths, but there are some things that are more true. There are things that are, there are ultimate truths. There is ultimate reality. There is something that is at the, is at the core of everything, and Jesus says, I am that truth. The, the, the truest answer and picture you'll ever get about who is God. What, what is this world meant to be? What's the problem? Who are you as humans? What's the solution? Jesus says, I am the truth. If you look to me, you will find the answer to those questions. And I am the life. Not a version of life. I'm not just trying to give you life, but I actually am the life. There's this, this way of life that Jesus talks about. It comes up over and over in the Gospel of John. This beautiful line where Jesus says, I've I've come to give them life and life abundantly, life to the fullest. That instinctively as humans, we know that there is is a difference between being alive and living. 
There's a difference between just like, I'm kind of surviving and like physically I'm here and I'm going about my daily business. And then there's, but there's something inside of me that says there is something more to life than this. I was made for more. There's like a, a longing in my soul and in the pit of who I am that says there's something else out there. There is a life that is truly life. And Jesus says, I am that life. And the distinction between him being that life and simply giving that life is massive. Because for him to be that life versus just giving us that life, it means we can't have that life apart from him. That we have to be connected to him and attached to him and our faith in him. We have to be found in him, as the New Testament authors would say. If you are in Christ, you have this life. If you are in him, because that life that we long for does not exist apart from him. This is why when, when there's this idea that says, hey, you know, you only find life in Christ. It's not this picture of Jesus being petty and saying, if you're over there and you didn't come to me, I'm not going to give it to you because I don't like you. It's him saying, no, you're over there and I would love for you to have that life that you long for, but that life doesn't exist apart from me. And if I could somehow take that life and detach it from myself and give it to you and you would have it, it would no longer be life because it's no longer connected to me, the author and the source of abundant life. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you'll also know my Father. And from now on, you do know him and you've seen him. And again, just bless their hearts, the disciples. Philip's like, Lord, just show us the Father, and that's enough for us. He's like, oh my goodness. He's like, Jesus, that's great, the whole way, the truth, the life stuff, I mean, appreciate that. We don't really understand what you're saying, but could you just show us the Father? Could you just show us like who God is, what this is all about? Like what, what are we supposed to be focused on? Just show us. We're confused about everything else, but just show us God. And Jesus responds. He said to him, have I been among you all this time and you don't know me, Philip? And Philip's like, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, I know you, but I didn't ask to see you. I know, I've been with you for three years, but will you please just show us God? And he states it plainly. The one who has seen me has seen the Father. The one who has seen me has seen the Father. Philip, disciples, rest of you guys, everyone who's ever going to come after them in the future, anyone who's looking for God, I'm telling you, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You are staring God in the face. That the reason that Jesus makes this claim that he is the only way to God is because he actually is the God that we're trying to make our way to. You're trying to get to me, but you don't have to because here I am in front of you. Years ago, there was a theologian by the name of Karl Barth. He was giving a series of lectures at Princeton University. And during these lectures, he was uh, asked during a Q&A section by a student, he said, sir, don't you think that God has revealed himself in other religions and not only in Christianity? And Barth's response to this question is exactly what Jesus is getting at here. Sir, don't you, you think God has revealed himself in other re- religions and not just Christianity? And Barth responded by saying, no, God has not revealed himself in any religion, including Christianity. He has revealed himself in his son. In Jesus Christ, God has spoken for himself, and we must hear that speech. We must hear that speech. Every other religion, every other worldview, and again, there are truths to be found in them, and they're beautiful, and we should respect that, and that is fine, but every other other system answers the question of what do I have to do to get to God? 
What do I have to believe? What do I have to practice? Where do I have to go? How, how do I get to God? How do I get to enlightenment? How do I get to heaven? How do I reach nirvana? How do I get to that? How do I climb the mountain to get to that ultimate sense of whatever it is that I'm looking for? Jesus comes along and gives us kind of some bad news, but it's the bad news that precedes the best news in the world. Jesus says, it doesn't matter what you do, you can never get to God. No matter what you try, no matter what you go after, you cannot get to God. But here's the really good news. You don't have to because he's come for you. He showed up in our midst, in our presence. He has come near. Jesus has come near. And he is the God most high. He is Yahweh in the flesh. He is the God who was there at the beginning, created, creating, and wanting to dwell with his people. That is the God who has been revealed in Jesus. He is the one that you were made to be in relationship with. He is the one who, whenever sin got these th- this thing off the rail and he said the snake crusher is going to come, he is the snake crusher. He is the one who would bless the nations. He is the one who would suffer for the sins of his people so they could be in right relationship with him again. He is the way and the truth and the life. And and is it an exclusive claim? Yes, it is. It is an exclusive claim. But it is a claim that actually when we begin to think about it, it makes sense. It makes sense of the biblical narrative. It makes sense of world history. It makes sense of the world we see around us. It makes sense of our own lives and the things that we go through and the things that we experience and the things that we long for. Jesus comes along and says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. The challenge for us then is to answer the question, okay, do I believe that or not? And not like in a, yeah, I'm a Christian, so I believe this statement of facts that Jesus says, but like, do I, do I lean the weight of my life on that? Do I trust that? Is he the way for me, the truth for me, the life for me? And that's a question that we ask, right? And we, and we lean into at the beginning of a relationship with God. That's often when we think about it, right? He's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Okay, I guess I put my faith in Jesus, and, and, and that, that's that. Uh, if that's you, if you've not made that decision yet, I would encourage you to do that. I would love to have a conversation with you after, after the service. But accepting Jesus as the way and the truth and the life is something that we must do every day, even as his followers. Because there are times, I think oftentimes, it's so easy to intellectually say, yeah, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, but practically in the way that I live, he isn't. He's not the way that I operate as a human. You know, in the early days of the church, they were actually just called followers of the way because it was more than something you just believed. It was what you patterned your life after. Is he, is he what I pattern my life after? Do I follow after him? Is he the truth that, that, that informs everything about me? When I ask the questions about who am I, who are we as people? What is this world like? What is wrong? What's the solution? Who's God? Like all these questions that I begin to ask. And I say, do I find the answers to those questions in him? Is he the truth? Or if I begin to say, well, maybe I'll find some truth on TikTok or maybe I'll find some truth on my, my favorite political party or whatever news source. Or do I, do I come out of that and say, no, Jesus is the truth and everything else is underneath of him. And is he actually the life to us? And even as followers of Jesus, it is so easy for us to go about life and just exist and not actually live. To just be like, well, you know, I guess I'm here and I'm doing this thing and it's just, just kind of how it is, just this is what, what it's going to be or whatever, and, but not really experience the life that God has for us. And yes, we are in a broken world and that affects us, but if we attach ourselves to Jesus, there is always that life to be found.
So Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. The question is, is he your way, your truth, and your life? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much. God, that you are not a God who is far away. You are not a God who is distant. And that, that you didn't leave us to, to guess and to wonder and to, uh, to question who you are, but you have revealed yourself to us. That we have the best, the fullest, the most complete picture of who you are and what your heart is, is all about. We see that in your son, Jesus. God, that, that you became a man. You walked this earth. You showed us what it means to truly be human, to truly love God, to love our neighbors. Lord, you died for our sin, the sin of the world. You rose from the dead so that we can be back in relationship with you, so that we can find the life that is truly life. Lord, I pray that we would be people that lean into that, that trust in that, to find hope, forgiveness, freedom, and healing in who you are. We pray this all in Jesus' name.